text for this morning's sermon is Luke chapter 12, verses 1 through 7. If you want to turn there with me. Luke chapter 12, verses 1 through 7. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do, but I warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. Father, Give us eyes to see you more clearly this morning. Give us good perspective. Help us see you much more clearly than the difficulties of our circumstances that can tend to cause us to fear. God, I pray that you would remind us of who you are and what you've done for us in Christ. Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If I were to ask you, If fear was normal, most of you would probably answer with yes. Fear is normal. It's something everyone experiences, yet it's not meant to be. We weren't created for fear. The fact that fear seems normal means that there must have been something catastrophic that has happened to humanity. That we experience fear or anxiety as a normal thing. I'm speaking of the type of fear. Uh, Most of you are 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 informed to the fact that there's two types of fear the Scripture talks about. One works in your favor and is positive, and one works against you. One has to do with faith, and the other has to do with the opposite of faith, which is looking away from God, forgetting God. To fear God in the good way means to reverence Him, to love Him, to understand Him for who He is, to understand that 
He is the one who created our life. He's the one to whom we'll give an account to. And He's the one that'll judge our life. It's not a ty- the same type of fear as terror or uh, fear as though we have in the second sense where bad things are meant to happen to us. We fear people who may hurt us. It's sinful fear. In this text, we have both types of fear. It's healthy for us to see God for as He really is and to stand in awe and reverence of Him realizing who He is. That's good. But it is not normal or right that we should fear in the sinful sense. Adam and Eve never feared until they believed the lie of, the sat- uh, of Satan, till they doubted God's goodness and sinned, believed Satan rather than, than God. It wasn't until then that be- fear became normal to humanity. It wasn't until then that this became in a sense, a benchmark of what it means to be human. Christ did not fear in a sinful way one time. So as we consider this text today, I want to draw you in to what real humanity is meant, was always meant for. That you would trust God in the way God meant for you to trust Him. Even in the midst of difficult circumstances and uh, suffering. Sinful fear is the type of fear that forgets God. When you sense anxiety that comes from not looking at God, but from looking at your circumstances or looking at what can happen in a fallen world, these are symptoms of a greater problem. It's a reminder that your eyes are not looking at the right thing. Your perspective is off. When I get a sore throat... And when my body begins to ache, it almost kind of just hurts to the touch. I take my temperature and it's about 103. Sore throat, body aches, 103 temp, I think, strep throat. I tend to think I know what the problem is because of the symptom. And I think a lot of Christians have anxieties and worries and fear filling their minds and hearts. And rather than saying, uh-oh, there's a problem, they say, this is normal. This is normal. And so no one looks for the cure. No one diagnoses a big problem because they look around and say, are you afraid? Are you? Oh, everyone's afraid. Everyone's worrying. This is normal. So no one looks 
to where God would have us look when those type of symptoms are showing in our heart. The Bible doesn't pretend like life in a fallen world is easy. The Bible doesn't romanticize life in a fallen world with disease, sickness, death, murder, divorce, anger. It doesn't romanticize it as though it's not true. And yet, one of the most repeated commands in the Bible is do not fear. If you take all the statements that basically mean do not be afraid or do not be dismayed or in this text, do not fear, there's more than 365 of them in the Scriptures. Some will say, hey, look, there's one for every day of a year. But how can God command this in light of all the suffering, all the bad things that can happen to a Christian. The reason why is because every believer has a promise. And that is, is that God will never leave you or forsake you. You are never in a storm alone. You are never in a sickness or you never have a disease alone. You are never in a difficult marriage alone. In fact, when Joshua was called by God to take Moses' place, and God tells him all the things he's going to have him do, basically go conquer all these scary nations around them as a commander of the army, here's how he culminates what he says to him. He says, have I not commanded you? This is Joshua 1.9. Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. He doesn't say, Joshua, look at the training you have. Look how strong you are. Look at how your father was courageous. Look at how your father was bold. He doesn't say that. But he gives him the scariest job on the face of the earth. And he commands him to be strong and courageous. And not to be dismayed. And not to be frightened. And so this sermon is targeting myself who tends to say, yeah, right, get real. Look at what normal is. How, how can we really say this? And we're going to look at how God, because He's God, because He'll never leave us or forsake us, is not crazy when He tells us not to fear, but He gives us many reasons in 1 John 4.18, we hear this. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. 
For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And so, as our fears rise, as mine do, there's a flashing red light saying, right now, you're not living by faith in what God has done for you. You're not looking at the love of God. Because, Sam, if you saw the love of God right now, if you really comprehended the heights and depths and length and breadth of the love of God, I would not be controlled or cast down in that fear. So here's the charge. Fear not. For it is God who cares for you. The last few weeks, we've basically looked at the first six verses of Luke 12. And as we look at those verses, as we read any scripture, we should ask, what attributes of God do I see here? Because the Bible is not mainly about you. It's about God. But the good news is that's what we need. When you read your Bible, it's not mainly a manual for life. It's putting God on display, which is what you need for life. You need to trust Him. And what we've learned so far is we've seen God's power and authority on display in these texts. We'll look at it quickly. And we'll consider God's omniscience, the fact that He knows everything. And then we're especially going to focus in on God's care for us. Why would this comfort us? If you've never studied the attributes of God, it's the greatest thing you can study. It's the most practical thing for your life. The number one thing I'm doing in the counseling room It's trying to help them remember who God is, no matter what the issue is. Build them up in their understanding of who God is. So let's look at Luke 12. Let's see if we can see God's um, omniscience, God's power and authority in here. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. He warns his friends. He warns his disciples to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is like a veneer. It looks good on the outside, but that which it is hiding is something that's not nearly as pretty. Veneer wood looks good on the outside. You cut it open. It does not look good on the inside. It covers up. Hypocrisy covers up. It hides. It tricks. It fools. It deceives. He's saying to them, don't be deceived By these religious leaders, they look good on the outside, but they're evil on the inside. That's one thing he means by beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. 
And the second thing he means is beware that you fall into the trap where you start just looking good on the outside and you become like them on the inside. And then what he does is he tells them an attribute that he holds that destroys hypocrisy. It makes hypocrisy insane. Because look at what he says. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you said in the dark shall be heard in the light. Whatever you whispered in the private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. So the hypocrite only continues as a hypocrite if he thinks he's going to get away with it. I'm going to hide this part of my life. No one's ever going to know. And Jesus says it's all going to be uncovered. Anything that's whispered in the middle of the house room with no windows, where if you really have a secret that you're going to tell, anything whispered in there is going to be proclaimed from the rooftop. There is no way you can hide, nor can the Pharisees hide any sin in their life. It's all going to be exposed. It's all going to be uncovered. Don't listen to them. They're feeding you a lie. They're telling you you can do this religious stuff and have selfish, evil hearts on the inside. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. If you are hiding sin, you're not getting away with it. And if you think you are, you do not believe God is omniscient. Not only do you not believe God is omniscient, you don't think that God would actually unveil that which is hidden. Do you have a temptation to fudge the truth a little bit? You don't get away with it. You might fool people, but you will not get away with it. Is there secret sin that no one knows about that you're trying to keep from your spouse or your children or your parents? Don't be a hypocrite. Don't fall in to the lie that the Pharisees were falling into. <laughs> Remember who God is. He shines light into the darkness. He exposes sin. You see how the attribute of omniscience is practical in your daily life? Nobody, I shouldn't say nobody these days, you never know. Very rarely does someone go into a public place like a library and pull up a pornographic site and begin to watch pornographic videos. And the reason for that is there's people there. So, those who go into a private room, lock the door, open their phone, go on their computer, and look at pornography, they're forgetting that the most important person in the universe, God, is present. They forget He's omniscient. 
It's an attribute that escapes them because surely they hit God knowing would be more important than a thousand people knowing if we're thinking correctly, right? So Jesus exposes the leaven of the Pharisees and he says, don't be like them. Don't be like the hypocrites. This is what they're like. Matthew 23, he exposes them. He pulls the cover off. That's why they hated him. (laughs) He would uncover their sin in front of the masses because they're leading people astray. They're like, they're, they're shepherds that aren't caring for the sheep. But here's the question. You and I, if that's true, how do we not become a hypocrite? How do we not fall to the leaven of the Pharisees? Is there any sinless people here? Is there anyone here that would not mind of all their life being put on display? Is there anyone here that would volunteer to have your last week be put up on a screen? What if all your thoughts could just run across a screen for everyone here to see? What hope do we have if God is omniscient? And not only that, what if he has power not only to kill us, but to send our soul into eternal punishment in hell? Because that's what he reveals in this text. That's what God can do. And so everyone here should feel absolutely hopeless in playing some sort of cover game. I can cover it so that no one sees it. I'll get away with it. God will surely just put me up next to a bunch of murderers and say, well, you are better. Don't believe the lie. Your life in my life will be exposed. And so our only hope is to go to God for mercy. Any cover-up plan won't work. Adam and Eve sowed fig leaves the second they felt shame and sin. They tried to work their salvation. At the end of Genesis 3, God gives them animal skins as clothing, showing them that I'm going to be the one to clothe your nakedness. I'm going to be the one to cover your shame. An animal had to be sacrificed. Blood had to be shed for you to be covered. It's right there in the beginning of our scripture. So the only hope for a sinner would be if God had a plan. If God had it in his heart. If God had the type of love so that a perfect sacrifice could be made that we could be saved. And he did that in Jesus Christ. His only son, whom in his love he gave to go to the cross to pay the price for your sin and my sin. So that the desperate ones, not the hypocrites, the ones who call their sin what it is, the ones who quit trying to save face and say, he's my only hope. Those are the ones who Jesus came for. He came for the sinners, not those who think they're good.
And so if you've been falling for this cover-up plan, if that's the way you've been living your life, maybe you know about the gospel, but you've never admitted who you really are. I invite you to quit playing the game, to humble yourself before Christ and God will save you. And so we've looked at the omniscience of God. We've looked at His power and authority. He's sovereign. He's the one that casts into hell. You know, sometimes people say, God doesn't cast anyone to hell. People choose to go there. Baloney. Read Revelation, and you'll find out that it's God is the one who casts the false prophet into the lake of fire. God is the one who casts the beast into the lake of fire. God is the one that casts the sinner into the lake of fire. He's the one that has authority. You don't get to choose to save yourself. You need to fall down and beg for mercy from God. See that mercy in Christ. Cling to it with all you have. That is the gospel. That's the good news we have to proclaim. But then he says in verse 6, something very comforting. He tells us, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, are you, are, you are of more value than many sparrows. Now, why does Jesus say this? Jesus is cutting at the heart of one of Satan's greatest lies. And that is that God is not good. You see in your notes here, this is just an example to get you thinking about how Satan lies to us. Satan will say things like, God lacks power. God doesn't know. God doesn't care. And then what he'll point to is things like this. Look, are you suffering? Yeah, I'm suffering. Does it seem like God's keeping the details in your life in order? No, things seem like they're out of control. Does he seem like he's answering your prayers? No, in fact, he hasn't been answering my prayers. And so the conclusion we come to is either God lacks the power to help me or he must not value me. He must have forgotten about me. He must not really care. If God is God, does he really care about me? These lies have strength in them when the devil can point us to our suffering in, the fallen war, in this fallen world. Can you relate to that? Let me just give you uh, some scripture here to help show why that, that lie should not have grip in the Christian's life. Uh, turn with me to 1 Peter. 1 Peter 1, we're going to start in verse 3. Peter writes this to Christians that have been pressed out of their homelands and they've been scattered abroad and he's trying to encourage them to continue in the faith. He's trying to 
remind them that God is good even in the midst of their suffering. And he's trying to get them to live holy lives and not use difficult circumstances as a reason to quit uh, fighting the fight of faith. Here's what he says. 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to His great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Which means you could have never hoped in God if God didn't cause you to hope in Him through the new birth. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power, how are you going to continue in the faith? Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed to you in the last time. And then he says this, in this you rejoice. In what? In all these promises of salvation that he's just laid out. In the promise that you're going to continue in the faith, not because you're so strong and you're so good, but because of he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. The one who caused you to be born again is the one who's going to keep you in the faith. There is no spiritual children who die. There is no stillbirth. There's no spiritual stillbirth. If God bursts out the Christian, God will keep them in the faith. And here's what he says. In this you rejoice now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through the fire, are, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's saying, you're going to suffer. Don't be surprised by the suffering. But that suffering is going to produce something called gold. A faith that survives suffering. A faith that continues to worship God in suffering is a supernatural faith. That the lies of the devil when the devil points you to your suffering and says, see, God doesn't care. The faith of the believer that looks at the promises and continues to worship God in the midst of a life in the fallen world glorifies God. And then he says in 1 Peter 4, if you want to turn there, verse 12, he makes it real clear. 1 Peter 4.12 Beloved. (laughs) There's a lot in that word. (laughs) What he's saying is those loved by Jesus, (laughs) those loved by God, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. How often when our life seems to be falling apart are the circumstances of life do we start to say what am I what am I doing wrong why is he 
Why, why is he punishing me? Why this? Why that? Because obviously the lie there is, if I'm trusting God, then life would just go on easy. But Peter says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. Don't think of that as something strange that is happening. What he says is amazing. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. It just seems so not normal to our flesh to say that. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, which could be translated, you are happy because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. It's another way of saying, be happy in your suffering because the Spirit of God is with you. Because God is with you. This isn't some anomaly. Satan says, oh, God forgot about you. That's a lie. In fact, God told us we were going to suffer. That if they hated him, he was going to be hated. God's word tells us that God's the one that cursed the earth. The disease came into the world through sin and God's the one that made sin turn into physical death. And then in chapter 5, 1 Peter 5, 9, speaking of the devil, it says, resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. When the devil comes and begins to lie to you and says, God isn't good, look at your circumstances, God doesn't care for you, that's a lie. Christians are suffering all over the world just like you. Don't throw your pity party. All Christians are suffering in a fallen world. All of us are suffering, but our God has not forgotten us. He says, and after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who's called you to his eternal glory, will himself restore you. It'll be a personal restoring. God won't send an angel to restore you. He will restore you. He will confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. James taught similar things. In James 1, verse 2, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be complete, or perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any one of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it'll be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that's driven and tossed, uh, 
by the wind, for the person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded and unstable in all his ways. What he's saying there is, is if you go back and forth between God's good, God's not good, based on how your circumstances go, well, you're just going to be tossed to and fro. There's no foundation to stand on if you waver back and forth. Will God really give me wisdom in his word? Is there really hope in the gospel? And then in verse 12, he says this, blessed, this is James 1.12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life which he has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's being tempted, I'm being tempted by God. God's not good. God's doing this to me. Don't believe that lie, he says. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own sinful desires. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my brothers. Now look at what he says. Don't be deceived. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Don't believe the lie that God's not good. This is in the context of suffering. Don't believe the lie. Jesus said in John 16, 33, this is the last verse in this section. He says, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Jesus Christ said, in the world you will have tribulation. Let me say that again. Jesus Christ said, in the world you will have tribulation. When your own heart says to you, God's not good because of these circumstances. You haven't been reading God's word correctly. Jesus never said, if you follow me, everything will be easy. In the world, you'll have tribulation, but take heart. I've overcome the world. See, the Christian is in the time of suffering. We're in the time when just as Christ suffered, we suffer. Our bodies are dying now and will ultimately die. But our hope is in a God that suffers with us. He's with us in our suffering. And the suffering is temporary. It doesn't last forever. Paul called his suffering light and momentary suffering. Which his suffering was incredible. But he called it light and momentary in comparison to the eternal weight of glory. Eternal rather than temporary. Weight rather than light. Glory rather than Suffering, it's not going to last forever. It's this short time when we fight the fight of faith. So I know that's a lot on the front end, but here's what he says positively in verse 6. 
are not five sparrows sold for two pennies. Okay? Sparrows were cheap to buy. You could get five of them for two cents. And not one of them is forgotten before God. Here's what Jesus is saying. One of the most insignificant things in this world, a sparrow, God cares about the details of the sparrow's life. His omniscience goes to the smallest degree, all the way down to the sparrow, and he knows when a sparrow dies. I had a little bird dead on my porch this week that I kicked out to the road. Actually, we scooped it up in a little cup, kicked it, and then scooped it up and put it in the garbage. But I was studying this text, and I thought, God knows that. God keeps track of that. And then what does Jesus say? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Well, I found out the average human being, and I know average it is, has 100,000 hairs on their head. But God knows the exact one of them. Why does Jesus say this? To defeat the lie that comes and says, God doesn't know the details of your life. God has lost control. He doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't care about the small details of your life. And then he says this, fear not. You, fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. If he cares that much about one sparrow, you take a pile of sparrows, how much more does God value you? Now, I know we're almost out of time, and a huge portion of the sermon is unpacking that. We're going to do it next week. But what if the all-powerful God that has all authority, all power, knows everything. What if that God cares for you? He loves you. What if he cares about the intimate details of your life so much so that he's the one that's caused you to be born again? He's the one that will give you the strength to keep the faith. He's the one that will restore you, lift you up, give you your righteousness, give you your glorified body. You see, when we remember those things, it's not crazy to hear the statement, fear not. In fact, as those things start to come into picture in our lives, what begins to seem crazy is to say, fear No, if that God is sovereign over the details of my life, Romans 8.28 says, all things work together for my good. And my good until Christ returns is being conformed into the image of Christ. And a lot of that may be suffering. But I don't have to fear a day of my life. Yes, I may suffer, but God won't leave me. You see, comfort is not the greatest thing in the world. God is. And he'll never leave you or forsake you. And he's sovereign over the details of our lives. And the way you can know that God loves you is all you have to do is look at the cross. There's nothing more valuable to God 
than His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, the second member of the Trinity, God Himself. God in His love sends Jesus to come down here, live the life you and I could not live, carry my sin and your sin to the cross, and on the cross bear the wrath of God the punishment, eternal punishment that we deserved was swallowed up by the eternal man on the cross. Now you might never know the details of your suffering, understand why they happened. You'll probably never know the answer to that question, but you can know the question to whether or not God cares for you. And it's spoken to you loud and clear from the cross. As Jesus, while he's being nailed there, is praying that their sins would be forgiven, that God wouldn't hold them this against them. What an amazing Savior we have. My prayer is, is, is that that lie that maybe gets you down, that keeps you from reading God's Word, that keeps you from coming to church, that keeps you from praying, Bitterness that makes you think God's not good. My prayer is that this morning you were built up to fight that satanic lie that came to Adam and Eve in the garden. Did God really say not to eat from that this tree? Oh, God's holding out on you. God's not good. Father, I pray that you would help us encourage each other with promises, not pretending like life's easy, but promises that are rock solid. The greatest promise in the world, you'll never leave us or forsake us. That's true for us right now, for everyone who has all their hope anchored in Christ. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen our faith. We know that it's not perfect faith that saves us, but it's even small faith in the perfect Savior, the one who is our righteousness, the one who lived that life we couldn't live and is given to us as a gift. God, let us put our hope in Him. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.